So welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow. And today, we're really excited to be joined by Sean T. Burns, who's a writer, teacher, and historian who lives in Middle Tennessee. He's the author of Disunited Nations, U.S. Foreign Policy, Anti-Americanism, and the Rise of the New Right. Welcome to the show, Sean. Thanks so much, Lev. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, So I want to talk today about two recent pieces that you wrote for Jacobin Magazine. I also want to talk about your book a little bit. The most recent Mm -hmm. one uh, is called Neoliberalism Hasn't Helped Much of the Global South. And there's a lot to discuss here. Um, Mm -hmm. This is a really perilous, precarious, dangerous moment for millions of people living in the Global South. They're getting hit hard by food shortages. There's perhaps several dozen sovereign debt crises on the horizon. And, mm-hmm. um, but actually things haven't been good for, for quite a while for, for most of the world's population. Mm-hmm. So maybe we could begin with Bretton Woods Conference and you argue that things didn't have to be this way. So what was the Bretton Woods Conference and what would an alternative history have looked like if the Global South would have, well, would have been able to craft Well, explain to us what happened at Bretton Woods. Sure, sure. So the Bretton Woods Conference, um, you know, while while people often forget about it, you know, it's it's not always something that, you know, pops up in like high school curriculum, for example, is one of the more fundamentally important events in in recent human history. It was a meeting uh, among the United Nations, as it was called at the time, the Alliance Against Fascism during World War II, the nations that were not involved uh, in or the not involved that were involved, uh, whether militarily or just by being on the on the the alliance, you know, list, to craft a post-war world order, to craft an economic system to govern the world after World War II, it was very much a sort of common sense idea at the time that one of the great failures of the 1930s that had caused the the Second World War in the first place was a failure to coordinate a global economic response to the Great Depression, right? And there was a lot of moves by nations sort of to turn into themselves or imperial systems to turn into themselves and to not uh, provide a collaborative response to save uh, global capitalism in the 1930s. And so the idea was something different has to happen after World War II. So we're going to build this system. And the conference uh, was, uh, you know, dominated to some degree, as one might expect, by the uh, two most powerful capitalist states involved in uh, the war, the British Empire and the United States. But a a good number of countries from the global south are represented as well, especially from Latin America. Uh, And in the interest maintaining alliance unity, in the interest of making sure that Latin America did not uh, explore any kind of alliance with fascism or anything like that to sort of keep a strategically valuable part of the world uh, on board with the war effort, the United States and the British Empire showed a greater willingness to acknowledge the global South's concerns about the world economy. Um, And the key to that was the concern that these regions were underdeveloped, that they didn't have a industrial base, uh, that they didn't have a wealthy, broad enough economy to be self-sufficient, to truly uh, play as equals in a world of free trade, which is ideally what the United States wanted to see emerge. And so the Bretton Woods Conference actually reflected to some degree these developmental interests. And you can see it in things like the International Bank for Recovery and Development, which is now part of the World Bank. That development term in there 
is a key part of this, um, where you know the the sort of the industrial powers of the North were willing to acknowledge Southern interests for a time. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about what development would have looked like. What did the global South want the developmental policies to be coming out of the Second World War? Sure. So one of the the key things is that. Uh, in part due to imperialism and imperial systems, uh, you know, the Latin American states had all, of course, largely been part of the Spanish Empire. Uh, but the the broader global economy had a dynamic where the sort of northern core of industrial states was able to have diversified economies with industrial bases, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas the South was largely involved in producing commodities, primary commodity products, sugar, uh, rubber, things like that, and. This left them in a relatively precarious state because commodity prices fluctuate rather dramatically. And when much of your economy is built around exporting uh, these sorts of primary commodities, you're very vulnerable to those sort of price fluctuations. So if you know the, the, what you were doing is producing sugar and the price of sugar drops, as sometimes happened to Cuba, for example, the suddenly revenue disappears, right? Poverty becomes a problem more and more. And the States of the Global South wanted to see the Bretton Woods system recognize this concern in a number of ways. One, by including provisions, and this was part ultimately of the International Trade Organization, a hypothetical organization to govern world trade that was uh, established at a conference later after uh, the Bretton Woods Conference in Havana, Cuba. But one of the elements of the International Trade Organization was including instruments to stabilize commodity prices, to adjust things, to make sure that you did not see these wild swings in the values of commodities that global South economies were dependent upon. That's one element. The other element was to make sure that you saw generous financing from the global North of development projects in the South, projects that were designed to help global South economies uh, develop into more modern industrialized states. So that's really interesting. What year is the conference where the ITO is sort of formulated? I can't remember off the top of my head. It's like 46, 47, 48, somewhere around okay. there. So it's so just after, after the Woods. war. Yeah. yeah, just after the war, very much. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so if we can think about the, the industrialized economies, these hypothetical industrialized economies of the South, what mm-hmm. would they be producing? Would they be competing? with the industrialized economies of the North? Or they, would they be making sort of complementary goods? Yeah. So the, I mean, one of the key things that you see in development-oriented economic thought, uh, you know, even going back to sort of post-Adam Smith, neo-mercantilist thinkers in the 19th century, uh, is that unless an economy is able to start producing uh, the sort of elements of modernity, whether it's infrastructure or also industrial goods, that it's always going to be vulnerable to the states that have already done so, right? That it's not going to be able to raise standards of living uh, to a place where uh, the economy both is making life valuable for the people who are being incorporated into this increasingly globalized world, right? You have people who were peasant farmers who are being, you know, um, uh, forced into by the nature of the economy as uh, these regions further are drawn into the global economy who are proletarianized, who are being turned into workers. And if the quality of life is going to be decent for those people, you need to see supposedly to get to this sort of this level of industrialized modernity. And on top of that too, without that, you don't have the kind of economic resiliency that allows you to 
survive the inevitable downswings of a, of a capitalist economy. Okay, so these southern countries, global south countries are going to be producing both commodities and they'll be producing industrial goods. Mm-hmm. Correct. And I, I guess I, I read a bunch of your work now and you mm-hmm. you made the argument that when, say, Britain or the United States first industrialized, they were able to do this in part, in large part, through protectionism. So, for example, through high tariffs. Was this going to be part of the, the mix for the Global South countries? Were they also going to be able to, to put tariffs around their, their baby industries? Absolutely. That's part of the idea, right, is the strategic use of tariffs where you are, you know, you may not throw up massive tariff boundaries that essentially prevent you from being able to trade with other parts of the world. Although certainly some states, Tanzania, for example, did try that in the 20th century, not to great success ultimately. Um, but you use, you use tariffs to protect your infant industries. You say, okay, I'm going to uh, slap a tariff on, um, uh, I don't know, hypothetically, like an automobile, right? Um, and so that domestic industries within these global South states could produce those goods for their glo- their local market, allowing them to get established, allowing them to capitalize themselves so that eventually perhaps they could compete in a freer uh, market globally. Uh, but the idea is if you protect them locally, local demand will allow you know, money to flow to those, allow them to get established, allow them to get their feet on the ground, so to speak, so that they could then go and play with the big boys in the global economy. So this sounds, I gotta say, this sounds pretty good. And you're saying the <laughs> United States and Great Britain were actually down with this. So um, what happens after the war ends? And are there any countries which actually get to implement this type of development policy? Sure. So they, they're, they're down with it for a time, right? Um, they're down with it for a time. And the time is really brief. It might just be the Bretton Woods Conference, really, wow. right? And okay. afterward, you know, so you have major shifts going on in the United States that explain part of this. And Eric Helliner's book, which I mentioned um, in my article, uh, The Forgotten Foundations of Bretton Woods, does a great job of exploring, uh, you know, first off, the degree to which the Global South is able to influence the, the Bretton Woods Conference, and then in, in kind of a, a sad little epilogue, what happens afterward. And key elements here is first you see a transition from um, the more progressive New Deal outlook uh, of the Franklin Roosevelt administration to the somewhat more conservative Truman administration. We mean somewhat more conservative. The Truman administration was uh, you know, considerably to the left of where the, the prevailing political discourse is in the United States, <laughs> relatively speaking today, um, but was more conservative mm-hmm. than the New Deal crowd and the New Deal crowd in part was committed to um, better relations with Latin America. The Good Neighbor Program had been part of a, this was an idea that Roosevelt had to move away from the Theodore Roosevelt big stick. We're going to just use imperialism. We're going to use military interventions to make Latin America into what we want it to be to a more collaborative partnership. Uh, that desire to have a collaborative partnership with Latin America was further strengthened by the war itself. It was a strategically valuable region. There were fascist movements in Latin America, uh, and you know the United States did not want to see uh, this part of the world become anything other than a safe backyard while, while they fought it out in Europe and the Pacific. Um, so the war ends, the Truman administration comes in, and you see a, a move towards more corporate interest, more Uh, New York financial interests, uh, where the uh, idea of protectionism is seen as a problem. It's seen as 
socialist. It's seen as communist. And while we're not in the late 40s and yet into the full-on Red Scare territory, we're seeing this move toward, because of the emerging Cold War, because of longstanding American anti-communism and the vehemence of it, we're seeing sort of this rhetoric of no government planning, no government intervention. We need to move away from these sorts of things. Let the market do its magical work uh, to, which is, you know, just going to bring wealth to everybody. We don't need to have these kinds of interventions. Um, and so you essentially see wealthy interests in the United States move to ensure that the development aspects of Bretton Woods do not survive. Uh, you see the U.S. Um, uh, influence in the uh, IRBD, the International Bank for Recovery and Development, as I mentioned earlier, and the International Monetary Fund, uh, make sure that development projects are not governed through these multilateral institutions, that whatever development the United States is willing to do are more uh, like the Marshall Plan, where the U.S. government itself is calling the shots. So you see that. Uh, you see, eventually, the United States Congress rejects the International Trade Organization, despite broad global interest um, in what was to some degree seen as an American idea. Mm -hmm. um, and the, as I mentioned in, in the article, the National Association of Manufacturers said it would just make the world safe for socialist planning, you know, borrowing mm -hmm. from Woodrow Wilson's Making the World Safer Democracy. So there was this move to, to crush these uh, development elements out of the system uh, in, you know, again, because the, the essentially organized capital in the United States did not see it as in its best interest. Well, so instead of the ITO, we get GATT and the WTO, the World Trade Organization. How are those institutions different from the ITO? Sure. So one of the interesting things about GATT, of course, is it was really not meant to be a long-term plan, right? It was a temporary program, the General Agreement on Trade and Tariffs that was set up during the Bretton Woods Conference. Um, and the idea was, well, this will help us, you know, uh, get to the Havana Conference, get the International Trade Organization together. This is just a temporary program. Uh, and a lot of the states of the Global South that were independent at the time, again, largely Latin American states we're talking about here, were very skeptical of the GATT because the GATT had that uh, American interest in moving towards freer and freer trade built into it. It was ultimately designed to harmonize the lowering of tariff barriers across the world slowly but surely, uh, and did not include, it had some kind of protection, like all allotments for states to protect certain industries in certain situations or to protect certain commodities in certain situations, but not nearly as robust as what was imagined to be in the international trade organization. It just was not there. The WTO, which is you know much, much later in the 1990s, uh, emerges out of this GATT philosophy, essentially, and indeed, it's something we could touch on later, potentially, you know, by the 90s, uh, the United States is even more committed to freer trade, more open markets, less regulated economies, et cetera. So the WTO reflects even, you know, further in that liberal trade direction than, than the GATT did. But it's, it's, it's an intellectual descendant, an institutional descendant of that GATT agreement. But GATT, because of the failure of the ITO, ends up, you know, being the only uh, comprehensive uh, trade agreement for the entire world in, until the WTO is created out of it uh, later in the century. Despite the failure of ITO, are there some progressive or, or even radical countries in, and I'm thinking now post 1960, say, when you've got a lot of countries now 
becoming independent in the global south. Are there some countries which try anyway this new sort of development model? I shouldn't even say new because it's actually the development model that the U.S. and in Great Britain used uh, hundred right. years before. But are there any states which which embark on this path? Uh, yeah. So uh, as I mentioned, there there's some states that go sort of full into we're just going to be self-sufficient and we're going to try to cut ourselves out of the global economy because we see the global economy as designed to impoverish us, et cetera, et cetera. Tanzania being a, a very prominent example of this. Uh, and other states try various things at various times. Uh, Christy Thornton's uh, book, Revolution and Development, great recent study, talks about the various attempts Mexico made to follow these sort of state-driven tariff reliant development programs. Um, but by and large, the global economy is making this hard to do, right? The, the, the United States, the international uh, uh, financial institutions that it and its allies have a dominant role in uh, don't want to see these sorts of things happen. Uh, and so there is a willingness on behalf of the U.S. to engage in development programs that are geared towards preventing a communist takeover of countries. You see the idea of modernization theory, which is sort of this capitalist alternative to Marxist development theory, where there are particular stages of development. You, you, know, you have a sort of period where the rocket gets built up and then you have a takeoff stage. Um, and you see figures like Walt Whitman Rostow, who are a key uh, influential policymakers uh, during the Kennedy and Johnson administrations, pushing for these modernization programs where the U.S. is going to invest large amounts of money theoretically um, and know how to help states reach that developmental stage. South Vietnam ends up becoming the sort of prominent example of this effort, uh, obviously tied into a counterinsurgency war as well. So the U.S. isn't you know, saying that development doesn't need to happen. It's just only willing to do it under its own auspices. And then the global South itself begins to organize in the late 60s uh, and then into the 1970s to try to force the structural changes in the international economy that it would allow it to have these sort of developmental programs. And this is when you end up getting things like the declaration for the establishment of a new international economic order uh, coming out of the, the UN General Assembly, where what the states of the global South, the group of 77, as they call themselves, the, this organization, um, in the uh, General Assembly that comes to dominate it by uh, the late 60s, uh, what they are looking to do is alter the global economy in a way that allows them to establish these sorts of developmental states with, without interference from the global economy, without interference uh, from uh, the international financial institutions, with assistance from them. So the NEO calls for... Um, transfer like new forms of development financing that uh, give the global South input over how the money is spent. Unlike again, the, um, the World Bank or the IMF, you also see a program like the Common Fund for Commodities, which was an idea where you would establish buffer stocks of certain commodities that would be held and released in order to stabilize fl price fluctuations, right? And all of this stuff is designed to give greater economic sovereignty to the governments of the global South, to give them an ability to weather the storms of uh, you know, the market in a way that evens the playing field with the global North. Um, so there, there's a, there are real pushes for 
for this. There's real interest in this. You know, whether, of course, these kind of tariff uh, barriers, this kind of state-led development would have, quote unquote, worked is, is a real question. Um, but there was a real interest in this um, that, uh, of course, the United States resisted. But at this time, as you pointed out in your, your work, the United States is, is actually an empire in the decline um, <laughs> and in this losing the war in Vietnam. How is it that the United States, I mean, I guess there's two questions here. One, how is it that the United States is able to block this group of 77? And then two, what is the, well, no, let's start there. How, how is it that the United States is able to block this, this initiative? Sure. So, I mean, at first, it, it, it really isn't able to, right? And one of the interesting things that I found when I was researching my book um, is the degree to which U.S. policymakers in the 1970s were really worried about what was coming out of the United Nations. They were really concerned about this stuff. It was scaring them. Henry Kissinger um, is, a, is a real prominent example of, of someone talking about this. In fact, at, at a a meeting with European leaders, he was saying, we need to unify like the Greek city-states against the Persian invasion. You know, we need to get our act together and, and solidify ourselves in the face of uh, what is coming out of the group of 77. And in part, he was saying this because of the emergence of OPEC, right? And OPEC following uh, the 1973 Arab-Israeli war leads, uh, has a oil embargo against the United States and demonstrates that commodity producers, if they create cartels, are able to, rather than being subject to the whims of global market pricing, right, they can control pricing because they control the availability of the commodity. So if you have all of the oil, you know, or well, not all of the oil, obviously, because the United States is still an oil producer, then, um, but, or, well, we are again now, but was still producing a large amount of oil, but the United States uh, was just one oil producer. There's so much coming out of OPEC, and what they're able to do is take control of oil pricing. And what Kissinger and others in the US government are terrified of is what if other states start to do this? What if tin producers start to do this? What if copper producers start to do this? What if we see the OPECization of the global economy? Suddenly now, all of that economic power that the United States has uh, is, uh, is, is threatened. And the possibility here ha is something that has to be confronted. And people work really hard to do it. Um, and one of the things that Kissinger is interested in doing is finding ways that he can uh, accommodate the desires of the global South without really giving them much, right? Um, he's willing to engage in these discussions. He's willing to have these meetings. He's willing to, to even accept that, uh, you know, there might be something slightly wrong with the global economy and that the United States needs to accommodate this because at the time, there's really no other clear path. So on the one hand, he's willing to accommodate it. On the other hand, in fact, that we, we talk about the group of 77 and now we hear much more about, right, the G7, the group of seven. Well, that emerges in fact, as almost a reaction to the global South organizing, you know, just like you might see the National Association of Manufacturers emerges because business leaders have common interests and they, they don't want to see unions uh, emerge and, and give workers power that might have leverage over them. The United States begins to push to organize the group of seven. And that, in fact, is created in a, in a series of conferences in the 1970s to organize 
the West to organize the, the sort of industrial powers, Japan is part of this, of course, as well, um, in a way that they can present a solid front uh, against the global South in these meetings. Like uh, the, uh, there are a number of conferences, North-South conferences in the 1970s exploring issues uh, related to the global economy. Um, and so that pro- step really is important. Uh, you slowly see a new level of Western unity in responding to uh, the uh, G77 in the UN. But then ultimately, I think the story, the way the US quote unquote wins or is able to stymie uh, the G77 is following the third world debt crisis in the 1980s. Um, the uh, Somewhat ironically, given that OPEC was the, the inspirational story for the potential of these of commodity producers to organize against the uh, industrial states, uh, OPEC price rises hurt the global South, you know, quite considerably. They need those oil supplies, so they borrow heavily uh, to pay for expensive oil. But then, in the 1980s, commodity prices collapse, damaging, as we talked about earlier, these economies that are dependent upon commodity export. And with that collapse, um, they have really only one recourse, and that is to turn to the IMF and the World Bank. Um, and the IMF and the World Bank reflecting to some degree that the, the wishes of the Reagan administration and a broader sort of G7 Western consensus moving towards neoliberalism uh, enforces as part of these loans that they're making to bail out states in the global south, uh, what is called structural adjustment, which is um, you know, a, a, essentially a program of austerity cutting government spending, um, selling off state industries, um, reducing tariff barriers, reducing any kind of government intervention in the economy, uh, which supposedly, you know, it's, the, people weren't just saying you have to do this because you know, we want you to, supposedly the, um, uh, the justification for these structural adjustment programs is that it would make the, the economies in question, the one that needed the bailing out, uh, more competitive in the global market. Uh, so, you know, at first the U.S. has struggles to respond to the, the G77's um, uh, program. There's real concern. Um, you initially see this sort of attempt to accommodate while organizing the North. And then subsequently, uh, when more conservative figures enter power in the United States, you see a move towards uh, the, the neoliberal policies uh, that in many respects still govern the global economy today. I see. So if I could just recap, you have some independence, you have some organizing actually happening, a lot of organizing happening in the global South mm-hmm. that's met with organizing in the, in the North. And mm-hmm. then you have this oil crisis, which then becomes a, a sovereign debt crisis for the South. They Correct. go to the IMF, the World Bank, they take out loans, but there are stipulations there. And now they've got to reform their economies and, liberalize everything, no more tariffs, free trade for all. Um, it all is that right, the story? Yeah, absolutely. And, and a key part of that, you know, is that the um, structural adjustment programs, by their very nature, are going to undercut leftist forces within those countries in the global south that are that are going under that that knife of austerity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where, you know, in general, the the types of political figures who are interested in global south organizing um, are figures who 
want to see state ownership of industries or some anyway. They want to see some degree of government spending uh, on uh, welfare and welfare-like programs. Um, and so austerity is, is, is bad news for them. It's bad news for their political program. And so as a result, you're going to you see um, you know, changes in the tenor of regimes uh, that while the G77 still exists, while there is still um, you know, a third world majority in the United Nations General Assembly, um, it was distinctly more radical um, and distinctly more, not so much anti-capitalist, but distinctly more open to major revisions in the structure of the global economy um, than you see by the 1990s. And I, I think there's another part of the story. I, I've been teaching this, this 10th grade class, um, mm -hmm. a global history class. And it, you know, the same moment, so the, the 1960s and 1970s that you're describing, this stuff going on, there's also, um, when you talked before about cartels, you know, talking about copper cartels, mm -hmm. you also have like a coup in Chile in 1970, is it 1973? Mm -hmm. yep. um, and you've got a coup in Brazil in, I guess, 65 and in 64, 65, or 65, 66 in Indonesia. It just seems like also like states which are trying to go their own path are also, there's also like violence being employed. And so Absolutely. It's, you know, it's like you're organizing on one side in, you know, against the 77, but you're also assassinating people or fermenting coups. So and it starts <laughs> earlier, right? It starts right. earlier. You see it in Guatemala right. in the right. 1950s, you know, right. and yeah. And, and there, there, there's a pattern there where these, these coups are um, either organized and implemented to some degree by the U S or great Britain by the CIA um, or aided and abetted by them, right? Chile is still, a, a, you know, there's lots of debate over whether the U.S. Mm -hmm. could claim responsibility for that, but I, they were certainly thrilled it happened, right? They, and they, right. in fact, it, it, uh, responded to the, um, the center-left regime in Chile by making their life difficult, right? By making it hard, uh, by imposing essentially sanctions on the Chilean uh, regime, so as to facilitate the kind of chaos that would allow for a coup, right? So right. whenever you see these, and, and we're not talking necessarily communist coups here, I mean, communist kind of governments, in fact, we're talking center-left stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I forget who it was. I was reading something yesterday, but it was a Danish economist who had been involved in the Bretton Woods Conference who said that uh, Arbenes, the, the leader in Guatemala that a CIA coup removed in 1954, just reminded him of a, a sort of standard Danish social democratic politician. Right. But the, the U.S. is, is, is unwilling to tolerate anything with a hint of the kind of leftism that might be communist, right? Um, and so there, you're, you're absolutely correct to say, so not only does the West organize against uh, the these potential for these cartels, the Western intelligence agencies are actively involved in undermining governments interested in pursuing uh, these sort of center-left uh, economic development programs. And Brazil's a good example. Chile's a good example. Guatemala's a good example. Even Iran is a good example to some degree as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, Sean, I mean, one thing that is genuinely confusing to me, and maybe you can clear it up, mm -hmm. is that you know, we get now to the 90s, you've got the WTO, You've got, I don't know, maybe 150 countries, maybe more joining the mm -hmm. WTO. This is voluntary. Mm -hmm. you, don't, you don't have a group of, you know, 77 anymore pushing back against against the United States and, and the G7. It now seems, at least, and I could be wrong, 
that mm-hmm. there's been a kind of acquiescence or there's been an acceptance from the people in the global, the leaders in the global south. Um, is that accurate to say? Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, maybe begrudging acquiescence in many cases. But I mean, first off, it's important to remember that in the late 1980s and into the 1990s, it, it became sort of worldwide common sense. It appeared to be to many people that neoliberal policies were the right idea, right? And there's, there's a complicated element to the, the story here involving both the, uh, the sovereign debt crisis in the global South that leads to the sort of the collapse of G77 radicalism, um, the ultimate collapse of the Soviet Union and uh, its this sort of communist counter project generally, um, also not unrelated to commodity prices, by the way, right? A key part of why the Soviet Union ends up destabilizing uh, in the, the 80s um, is that uh, Mikhail Gorbachev is trying to respond to a uh, Soviet economy that had been buoyed by high oil prices in the 1970s and now was no longer you know, uh, able to benefit from those to the same degree. And so he had to pursue reforms, reforms that ultimately unraveled the Soviet empire. But so what you see in the 1980s is the collapse of any left alternative to what the United States is proposing. And the United States, of course, as I mentioned, you know, when I was talking about Truman versus Reagan, um, is considerably, has moved considerably more in a liberal, neoliberal trade direction um, or towards neoliberal economics, rather, uh, by the 80s than, you know, it even had in the, the the 40s, 50s, 60s, et cetera. This is, they've moved even further to the right, so to speak. Um, and this is widespread common sense. This is why we see when communism collapses in Eastern Europe, Eastern European regimes rushing to the West saying, give us advice, give us advice. We know what you are doing is the right answer because of course the communist project had not been successful as far as it appeared at the time, right? It was, it was no longer successful. But of course, at, when everyone's running to the West saying what you're doing is right, what you're doing is right, the West is doing something different than it had been doing, right? It's moving away from um, the de- varying degrees of social democratic practice that it, it had pursued um, in the middle part of the 20th century. Even the United States was, was a bit more in the social democratic direction in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And mm-hmm. this, uh, the, the, the welfare state, the redistributive state begins to be torn apart. Um, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, but this is, all seems like common sense. This is the we we saw the communist example failed. We saw third world development isn't as successful as it should be. Uh, we're going to look at Korea and ignore the long period of state development before it turned and globalized itself and got wealthy. We're going to ignore the well, development. Well, no, but period so that's Sean, but that's yeah. what I'm confused about because you actually yeah. have some models like Korea and a huge right. model like China which is the mm-hmm. state development project. So why isn't it today that countries are saying, well, actually, you, you, United States, developed using protectionism. And state right. And Korea did it, and China's doing it now. Why isn't there that kind of pushback? Yeah, and I, I think, again, part of it is that period in, in the, the 80s and 90s where this, um, uh, you know, neoliberal common sense gets enshrined and still remains to some degree. There's still sort of this just assumption that that the only way towards sustained economic growth, and of course, that the, the idea that growth in itself is valuable is, in, is unquestioned as well, right? But the, um, 
this is still that the only way to get that is to is to deregulate, to open to global trade, to open to global capital, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the the places where state development worked um, are all, of course, maybe extreme examples. Right? China is different from many states in the global south, and that is a, a continental power with quite a lot of resources, right, um, and a huge internal market potentially. Um, and uh, Korea, again, is an, is an interesting example where um, uh, state development was an initial phase before a turn towards, all right, let's just we'll focus on um, uh, commodity export. We're going to focus on uh, you know, deregulating. Um, but the, the, the process of state development and, and then deregulation might be related to the, the Korean economic miracle. Um, and then you also have the fact that in some cases, d- development style uh, practices, like in India, for example, um, I know you had uh, Vivek Chiver on the podcast uh, recently. His, mm-hmm. his, his classic book, Locked in Place, shows that these programs in India were unsuccessful because tariff protections, all they did were um, bolster uh, monopolists essentially within India um, and who kept control over things and, and prevented a broad-based uh, period of economic growth that you know essentially enriched the already pre-existing local capitalists. So unfortunately, all of many of the hopes that the folks at Bretton Woods, the Global South representatives at Bretton Woods had for these kind of neo-mercantilist development policies, absent broader global structural changes, right? They don't always work. They don't always work. Right. Um, they, some people are lucky, Taiwan, South Korea, uh, Singapore, they're able to find ways to mix and match these sorts of things, state investment, state development, but also opening um, and, and globalizing in ways that uh, allow them to reach uh, a certain level of consumption and capitalist modernity, so to speak. And in other cases, it's just not successful. Um, so yeah, there isn't um, a clear road here because you're still doing this within a global economy that is structured in certain ways uh, that you know, may, may not be particularly beneficial to your country. Your argument in your book seems to be that the reaction against the global South in the 1970s actually produces a new kind of politics here in the United States, a kind of a shift to the right. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. I what I attempt to suggest is that contemporary or the the, the existing scholarship previously uh, about the rise of what we call the new right, which is this the more conservative um, version of the Republican Party, essentially, it's largely Republican phenomena, um, involving vehement anti-communism, um, the uh, an interest in less and less government regulation of the economy, dismantling the New Deal state, um, and social conservatism, um, anti-abortion politics, uh, you know, uh, family values, supposedly. Uh, the this the emergence of the new right. Um, that the G77 campaign in the United Nations actually plays a role in this. There's lots of great scholarship on the other elements. It's not the only part of the story. You have the the suburban sunbelt politics idea, which is the that 
um, population movements to Sunbelt cities in the United States um, helps lay the groundwork for a, a politics that is uh, resistant to further integration, that is resistant to uh, higher taxes um, and uh, is um, attached again to these family values and that there are you know, internal domestic reasons for the emergence of the new right, all of which is very compelling stuff. Um, and you also see you have people like Rick Perlstein making really good, uh, you know, compelling um, narrative arguments about the business interests in the United States organizing to help create the new right through um, these uh, policy, you know, well, through the funding of conservative grassroots organizations that, um, you know, seek to roll back the supposed socialism of of New Deal America and all the rest. So that's a key part of the story. And another part of the story too that that sometimes gets lost out, left out. Um, recently, it used to be a key focus was uh, you have a after detente, right? Detente is this period of uh, cooling uh, down the tensions of the Cold War between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. There's a reaction against detente um, on the right. Uh, the emergence of what became the neoconservative movement um, who wanted to see higher defense spending, less agreement with the Soviet Union, more vehement prosecution of the Cold War. So you have domestic reasons, you have Cold War related foreign policy reasons. And what I wanted to, to show is that another part of this too um, is that politicians in the United States are reacting to the G77's campaign in the United Nations, in part because this campaign is, is in many respects, very anti-American, um, whether explicitly, in some cases, there, there's explicit anti-American elements, for example, um, when the UN General Assembly uh, decides to expel Taiwan from China's seat uh, in the United Nations, right? For the longest time, the US had been able to control the General Assembly such as to allow the, the fiction that Taiwan the government in Taiwan, the nationalist Chinese allied to the United States, Soto Voce, of course, but allied to the United States represented the government of China um, when the actual government of China was not in the UN at all. Um, and the General Assembly corrects this. Um, but, you know, there's definitely a tenor of, you know, sticking it to the US. Um, and then in other cases, like in the pushes for global economic system reform, sometimes it's more tacit that the US is the problem, but it very clearly is there, right? You know, um, this is part of the story. And so what, what you see in the US is a emerging sense that, wow, the whole world is going against us, right? And we have all these problems at home, we, the Watergate crisis, um, race riots, uh, the stagflation, um, Nothing seems to be going right at home. And the, the global South is turning against us. And the US had long been deeply attached to uh, the idea that the global South was sort of going its way long, perhaps, but you know, certainly part since the Cold War, because it was key to proving that the US system was better than the Soviet system, right? We need to show this by um, creating uh, capitalist allies in the global South and and we'll do this even through modernization. And our standout example will be South Vietnam. We're going to create this capitalist bastion in Southeast Asia that's able to resist uh, communist attacks and so on and so forth. But that blows up too, right? In, right around this time. So you have this prevailing sense that the world is turning away from the United States, that the world is turning away from capitalism. Um, and 
you increasingly see political mobilization on the United on the right in the United States against this idea, against this sort of foil of a dictatorial leftist uh, global South. Race, of course, is a key part of this. Um, these mobilizations uh, employ uh, you know racist language towards the, the the third world. One thinks of Donald Trump's recent statement, you know, about uh, certain types of countries. You see this sort of stuff. Um, that that is layered in there as well, but it's wrapped up in this idea that the the global South is rejecting the United States. And so, what the U.S. needs to do, just like it needs to do with the Soviet Union, is to be more assertive. Um, and Daniel Patrick Moynihan, uh, the uh, eventual New York senator, becomes something of a national celebrity during his brief tenure as the uh, U.S. ambassador to the United Nations uh, because he is given them hell at the UN, as, as Time Magazine said uh, mm-hmm. uh, on a cover feature they did on him um, uh, about this. So this was really a big deal. People cared. People knew who the UN ambassador was, right? You ask yeah. the average person today who, who it is <laughs> right now, you know? Um, and the this was, so it actually was a key part, uh, a key theme within grassroots mobilization um, on, uh, in the new rights movement to taking over not just power within the Republican Party, but in fact, shifting American politics to the right in a more or less permanent form in the 1980s. So Sean, this is the last question. I, I like to ask guests this question. I have been you know, um, at my school for the last 16 years and every mm-hmm. year the students do, I would say the equivalent of like a, a thesis a defense. And in this thesis defense, as part of their graduation requirement, they have to talk about where they feel, and this is a tough question for for kids and for all all of us, but (laughs) where they feel their research falls short or put it a a different way, what what do you wish you knew that you don't quite know or if you had lots and lots of time and money and could spend a few more years doing research on some of the things that you've researched for your book, what would you like to know that you don't feel 100% confident about right now? Sure, sure. Well, if I was superhuman, um, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, someone who, someone who could tell the story of the G77 in the UN from a truly like multinational perspective, and there are probably mm-hmm. people who can do it. I'm unfortunately just a poor monoglot, but um, mm-hmm. you know, someone who could really work in the archives of, lots of the the global south states and obviously there's a lot of them right um and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but then also like where we create a comprehensive picture like one of the, the the things in my book i'm very open about early on this is an american history right this is a history of how the world impacted the united states i'm working largely within american archives and um you know to so to broadly tell that story uh would uh, would be really really cool um there's certainly people who are already telling parts of that story. I, I mentioned uh, Christy Thornton earlier, her book on Mexico gives the Mexican side of this story very, very clearly um, and very uh, uh, powerfully. Um, and uh, so something like that would be, I think, really cool to do that kind of comprehensive history of that. Um, I also, you know, there's definitely uh, things in my conclusion uh, that uh, of, of the book that, you know, Maybe I'd be a little bit more stern on now, you know, with the, mm. the way the world is going lately. I certainly <laughs> feel a bit more strenuous about things that I was uh, trying to soft pedal, perhaps. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's definitely elements there. But that, like, 
truly multi-archival, multinational histories. People are doing them. Um, they're you know really impressive scholars. Um, but uh, to do that for for the history of um, the push for global economic system reform in the 1970s, I think it'd be a really cool project that unfortunately is beyond my power. So if anyone out there can do it, do it. I'll read it. You know. <laughs> <laughs>